Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. And uh, this is the last time I will be preaching to you, and uh, so um, we haven't been here that long, but this is kind of a farewell sermon, Um, and uh, we're going to start in verse 11 of chapter 6, Galatians 6. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, but, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God, that's the phrase that has launched a thousand commentaries. But anyway, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. So, from this passage that's concluding Galatians, I want to pull out three lessons for sovereign grace. Here's the first lesson. Watch out for those. Those is in quotation marks. In verse 12, Paul refers to those who want to make a good showing in the flesh. This group of people have been in Paul's view throughout the letter. Who are, who are they? Well, they're, from what we can extrapolate, Jewish leaders with some teaching credentials, who in some measure accepted that Jesus is from God, but who are pressing converts from paganism to Christianity to be circumcised. Circumcision, as you probably know, was the badge that would mark these Gentiles um, as Torah observers. And so these leaders taught Christ and. Christ and circumcision. Loyalty to Christ mixed with identifying oneself with Torah observance. Why would they push for circumcision? Well, generally, 
It would make life easier by keeping everyone happy, and it, uh, they wouldn't be rocking the boat. And so these Jewish leaders were urging, actually forcing, new Gentile converts to be circumcised. And uh, Paul says they are trying to make a good show in the flesh. That is, they are very concerned to show to the important people surrounding Gentile authorities, the Jerusalem church, to prove to them by outward, tangible, measurable marks that nothing really has changed. Everybody is still in line. Uh, We've just thrown a few Jesus words into the Torah observance mix, but the mix is basically what it was before. In verse 12, Paul says that by forcing circumcision on new converts, these leader teachers are protecting themselves from possible persecution. So if they can show that nothing, ha- nothing essentially has changed, that they and those under their charge are still defined as of old, the old guard of, Ju- of Judaism and the local pagan authorities who are relying on the fact that we don't have a new group of people won't view them as outliers and so everything stays the same including these folks' leadership uh, uh, position. In verse 13, Paul makes a point. There's something shallow behind these leader teachers' insistence on circumcision. While these teachers insisted on circumcision, they were shrugging off the rest of Torah. They had no compunctions about coming up short in Torah observance. Just make sure you're wearing the badge, circumcision, that says you're all about Torah. Right? And so in summary then, these teachers were pushing something that, without doing away with Christ, they were, that w- the teaching, the, the teaching it, it diluted allegiance to Christ. They were doing this to keep the authorities happy. Ultimately, though, this practice was self-serving. It was meant to keep them out of trouble, maintaining their respectable stance. And they were, in all of this, Paul claims, insincere. What was really motivating them was putting on a good show for the sake of themselves. Yeah? Hopefully you're already sensing some application here. In Acts chapter 20, when Paul is leaving the Ephesian church after his stay there, he set the example of warning the church about leader teachers. He says, fierce wolves, that's his quote, fierce wolves that would come in and even arising among your own selves who would draw away the church from simple faith and to themselves. And in one of his last major talks to his disciples, Christ himself 
warn them repeatedly, this is in the Olivet Discourse, warn his disciples repeatedly about people who would come and teach in his name, but who would actually not be from him. And so the point here is that threats to Christianity arise from within. Maybe they arise from without too. But it's the internal threats we're more often warned about. And of course, there's usually, though, a connection between the threat within and what the situation is without. False teachers, or those who promote false teaching, are concerned to render Christianity agreeable to the outside power structures. The thought is, Christ can be mixed. Christ can be mixed with the, with the cause of the day, or a certain culture, or a certain, or a, or a certain um, uh, uh, currently acceptable mood. There's no problem with Christ as long as he can be made palatable to the powers. And so, brothers and sisters, the, the, the charge to you today is to be on your guard against teachers who want to add something to what you have in Christ. Beware of those who push something that is in addition to a simple allegiance to Christ. Adding to straightforwardly spirit-given, that is, biblical faith. And this adding to Christ can be very subtle. It, it can take the form of liberalism or conservatism. Actually, I would think usually, surprisingly, conservatism. Christ plus Americanism. Christ plus anti-Americanism. Christ plus adapting a certain old-fashioned culture. Christ plus denouncing something other uh, Christ plus denouncing something or other. Christ plus anti-racism. Christ plus allaying some people in authority. It happens all the time. And so the charge is to be wary of this. When the conversation or the cause outside of the church... Uh, becomes the conversation cause of the church. You understand? We good with that? Be wary of looking over the shoulderism. My my coined word, looking over the shoulderism, uh, that is orienting your faith to some group, fitting into the evangelical cool kids, or the fundamentalists, or more subtly, doing the opposite of whatever the cool kids are doing, trying to kind of uh, be a niche church, orienting basically yourself to something other than the Christ presented by the Spirit in these scriptures. Be wary of uh, this sort of vague, almost unspoken mood that's presented to you. 
which is you're not really or fully in the club until blank. And the answer to that, the the only way to fill in that blank is actually you're not really in the club until you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who was sent by the Father and who is testified to by the Spirit in the Scriptures. Full stop. That's it. The church has from the beginning been tempted to add on to Christ. And that's what Paul was struggling with in, 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 uh, in Galatians. Maybe his first letter. And that's what we're struggling with today. To add on to Christ. To make our teaching into something more palatable to some authority structure more marketable to the world or some subset of that. And so, brothers and sisters, I urge you to be on your guard against uh, teachers that would take you away from simply Jesus Christ. And it can all go down fast, as Paul tells us in Galatians. I can't, he says something like, I can't believe you're already turning. Okay, and that's the first charge to you. Are we good with that one? Okay, number two is take the stigmata seriously. You know you would get some Latin phrases if you just kept awake. Stigmata is the word behind, actually the Greek word even, behind the English translation of marks in verse 17. I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The original word actually has come into the English language through Francis of Assisi. Uh, and a related word, as you probably have heard of, is stigma. Uh, a mark of disgrace associated with something negative. Uh, if you are a Patriots fan, you carry around a stigma, for example. Okay, anyway. Paul says that he has in his body the marks, the stigmata, of Jesus. He bore old wounds and the now scars, damage that came, psychological or physical, that came because of his allegiance to Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 6, he lists what he has passed through in serving Christ. I'm just going to rattle this off. This is a quote from 2 Corinthians 6. He talks about afflictions, hardships, calamities. That's a great word. Beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. We are treated as imposters. Later in that book, that same book of 2 Corinthians in chapter 11, Paul compares himself even with other believers that he knows. And he says, quote, far greater labors, far more imprisonments. Then he begins another sort of a ghastly list. Quote, Countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with wads. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from river, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. 
Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night. In hunger and thirst. Often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of me, on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And so you look at that list and you think, yeah, that will take a toll on you. And so returning to our passage, because service to Jesus has taken such a toll on his body, and some of that was actually visible to the eye, Paul says, everyone who's causing me trouble should just leave me alone. And you, you, you need to have read the first chapters of this letter to fully get Paul's point here. Because at the start of the letter, Paul is insisting that his calling, his message came from God. Not from anyone else, even the important people in the Jerusalem church. And now, at the end of the letter, he picks up that same, same discussion and says, here's the final proof that I've been commissioned by Christ. And he says, look at these scars. That's the final proof. We might even, and the, you know, the text doesn't say that, but we, we maybe... Paul is suggesting this. I'm not saying that he is. But maybe in Paul's minds, the suffering from his faith was slightly analogous to circumcision. It was actually the badge that was demonstrating that he was indeed involved in Christ. And so, here's the point, brothers and sisters. Suffering. The signal that just here, the kingdom of heaven is engaging the kingdoms of the world, is what? Suffering. Pain. Not acclaim. Yes? Not smooth sailing as the sign that you're part of the people of God, but being adrift on the sea. Not escaping persecution, but danger and rods. And so the leaders, the teachers that Paul was wrestling with in this letter were pushing the mark of, circum, the mark of circum, circumcision as a way to avoid pain in the name of Christ. And Paul says, actually, this peculiar Jesus pain is what grants you credibility. Does that make sense? Or no? And so, when you're young in the faith, you might labor under kind of a fancy that, you know, if I move away from somewhere, or if if I move to this place, or if I can leave behind this person, name your person, think about your person you could leave behind, If I can get married, if I could just have kids, or then it turns out to once the kids move out. And 
And you're always looking to, once the pain stops, and all of that can be reduced to, there's a Jesus life that doesn't involve Jesus pain. Does that make sense? The, the, here, that's the fancy. There's a Jesus life that doesn't involve Jesus pain. But again, going back to Acts 20, what Paul told the Ephesian church about himself skates directly next to a principle of Christian life. Here it is. I'm quoting from Paul. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. That's actually a really interesting verse. Paul says, I know the pain that I'm leaving. I don't know the pain that's in front of me. I just know there's going to be pain. That's a lot of the people of God. We don't know the pain that's in front of me. I just know there's going to be pain. You know, um, you know, to make it personal here, our, our family is moving away to New England. And I know the pain we're leaving behind. I don't know exactly the sort of pain that will meet us there. I know for sure there's going to be pain. What are you going to, Colin? Pain. Okay, so from our passage today, um, brothers, I want to remind you that following Christ in this age always involves, I mean, living in this life is pain, but following Christ always involves extra pain. The pruning of God is sharp. He prunes his people and it's sharp. Walking out of step with the world in all of its presentations and walking in step with the Spirit is rigorous. Retaining vigilance against falseness is laborious and it's sometimes awkward. And importantly, sometimes in retaining vigilance you will feel petty and you'll feel judgmental and you'll feel out of date. Standing firm against the tide and not submitting to the current self-righteousness of the day. Which, in these era, they call it wokeism or anti-wokeism. All of that takes concentration. Being the church through love serving one another is hard. It's, it's hard and some of you have the stigmata to prove it. And so don't run from that. Lean into it. Paul will say in this letter, he quote, For through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly await the hope of righteousness. His point is that we are awaiting people. And one of the implications of being awaiting people is that we are waiting for the suffering to relent, but it's not the time yet. The suffering won't always be inherent to following Jesus, but it is in this age. In following Jesus in this age, there is suffering. 
And so there are the two warnings. Watch out for false teaching teachers and lean into the stigmata. Okay, we good with those so far? Last one, we ready for that? The last, these rough exhortations only make sense in light of the last bit of instruction. Are we on the same page though? Give me some body language that you've understood. Okay, good. Here's our, my last exhortation to you. and it's, the, um, it's keep the cross close and personal. At the end of verse 13, Paul says that these leader teachers wanted to boast in your flesh. Boasting in both the Old and New Testaments isn't necessarily about bragging. Rather, boasting means having an answer for those who might be doubting you. Being able to tout something as having worked, having found something to lean on, something that's reliable, something that's not going to let you down. And so the idea here is that if these leader teachers could get these converts circumcised, they can boast in their flesh. That is, they have a noticeable declaration for those who might question them, saying, yeah, they're with us, they're under control. They're under our control. And these circumcised converts would be yet another manifestation that life is working out. Our team is still the right team. They joined our team. Our team's getting stronger. That's what it means to boast in the flesh. And but Paul's reply to all this is in line with what he said all the way through the letter. But here... He expresses it especially powerfully in verse 14. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a whole book of sermons just on this verse called the cross. But there it is. But far far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It's a great verse. If you wanted to point to something, brothers, to show people that your life has worked out. Think about it. If your life has worked out, if you wanted to point to something, something that could put a bounce in your step as you walk into a new room, that you would kind of maybe quietly even draw, be drawing confidence from. What would you point to? Your kids? Look at my beautiful family. Your business? Your accounts? Something that, you know, this is something that's not, again, you're sort of quietly kind of gnawing on throughout the day, you know, mentally, like, this is feeding my confidence. Your house? Your big brain? And Paul's answer to that question would be, what works? 
What I draw confidence from, what I keep drawing, what I keep kind of sort of gnawing on, what has set the table for my life, my response to, to those who wonder how my life is going is the cross. You might have noticed a little shift as three times Paul shifts to the first person sing, sing, uh, singular here. Me, me, I. And so the idea is that when Paul gazed at his navel, who am I? To whom do I belong? Where am I going? What am I doing? What, am I successful? The cross was his starting point. For Paul, the cross wasn't simply a theory or a religious doctrine or something sociological. It made him who he was. That's what he's saying. This made, this made me. And Paul says, by the cross, the world has been crucified to me. What did he mean? Are you ready? I always like to let people know who I'm speaking to, this is the most difficult part of the sermon. Mentally difficult. Are you, are you, are you there? Are you strapped in? It won't be that long. What did he mean by the world has been crucified to me? Well, what is the world? The world is not the same thing as the land, or all of the land, the globe. Here's my definition of the world. It's very catchy, and you'll, it'll be bouncing around your mind all week long. Or just the opposite. Here it is. Here, here's my definition. The world is the collection of agents, natural and supernatural, and agencies, and attitudes, and moods, and movements, and actions, and inactions. The whole complex, under the sway of the devil, that is in rebellion against the Creator, very often through ignorance and apathy. Yeah, do you get that? Is that catch? Is that, that's an easy one, right? In other words, the rebellion and might be, and actually I think usually is, largely passive, expressing itself not in things that are done, but in things that are left undone. The world presents in Africa, in the Americas, in Hollywood, glamorous Hollywood, but in the rural areas of those real solid people, in the 6th century BC, in the Enlightenment, all places and all times since Eden, the world presents. Yeah? We good with that? This rebellion runs through the institutions and the systems of the world. It runs through sports, except for the Broncos, that somehow they kept themselves pure. I don't know how they've done it. Anyway, it runs through sports, through the marketplace, through academia, through theater, through government, through family, through individual minds, etc., etc. Interestingly, the world, this rebellion against the Creator and the kingdom He's establishing shows up most nakedly in religion. 
even among those who think they're being loyal to God and His purposes. Indeed, in the course of history, Israel, the people who were called by God to be kings and priests, who were meant to present God into the world as kings and to represent the world back to God as priests, in many ways, Israel ended up epitomizing and even summing up and emblemizing the world in its antagonism to the Creator. Now, okay, that's the world. In your mind, so what does it mean the world was crucified to me? In your mind's eye, you have a mind's eye? Okay, in your mind's eye, zero in on Jerusalem in the early years of the third decade of the first century. Okay, are you there? Then and there, the world, as it were in every place and every time, gathered together in opposition to one young Jewish man in Jerusalem. Now here's the hard part. A young Jewish man who in his person summed up God's intention for Israel to represent the world to God. And then and there God met the world represented in that one man. And he trains his anger at it and at the cross crushes it by crushing him. And so then and there, at the cross, the world and all the stuff deeply connected to the human rebellion in the world, all the presentations of this alienation from God, the shorthand of which Paul started in Galatians 5, starts to call flesh. Then uh, we can start listening it. Sexual immorality. Moral griminess, living by feelings, sloth, trusting in the the ungods, pharmaceutical escapism, disliking people, picking fights, throwing pity parties, impatience boiling over, arrogance, long-standing hateful conflicts, bitter partisanship, boiling over, arrogance, long-standing hateful conflicts, Uh, I just said that, losing control, throwing off restraint and crouching toward weird and irresponsible sex. All this stuff and stuff like these at the cross, it's all destroyed. The world there is condemned and then it's just broken. It's shattered. And so after the cross, brothers, there's no future in the system that is rebelling against God. That's not submitted to his person and his program. Which means, eventually, there's no more future for me in taking up the interest of the world, in allowing the world to set my agenda, in putting my hopes into it. 
I like uh, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this verse in his paraphrase, the message. I'm going to quote it. For my part, I am going to boast about nothing but the cross of our Master, Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, I have been crucified in relation to the world, set free from the stifling atmosphere of pleasing others and fitting into the little patterns that they dictate. After the cross, certainly I'm not spending my energies in trying to ingratiate myself to the world in making sure worldlings approve of me. Now, let's make sure we understand this. Paul isn't saying this out of some contrarian bent to his personality. But because something has happened. With the, with the Messiah's death, a shift, a cosmic shift took place. The world was crucified and what is already replacing the world or as he calls it in chapter 1, the old, evil, the old evil age, is what? What's our phrase? A new creation. This is not something that we've dreamed up. This is not a construct that we've imposed on things. This is what has happened. And so getting back to the... Here's your second warning. Challenging thought. Getting back to the matter at hand throughout, throughout Galatians. Circumcision. Circumcision is a cut into the organ that initiates life. And was intended to symbolize a future renewal of creation life. That would come about, but not by human agency. Circumcision was God's command for his people to identify them as the carriers of this promise of life in the old dispensation of the world as it awaited its death sentence. Here are the people who are carrying the promise of life to the world that's under death. And Paul's point is that sentence of death has been carried out in the Messiah. Now, after our Lord Jesus Christ's cross, there is the dawn of a new creation when he's raised from the dead. And so the emblems of new the emblems of new creation can be set aside because the actual thing has arrived. Yes? Are you with me? In the new world, circumcision is out of place. Circumcision or uncircumcision is a moot question. Requiring circumcision would be a revolt against reality. The old is passing away. The new has arrived. And so what marks out the people of God now are not the symbols of new creation, but their connection to the one who by his resurrection life has begun already to renew all things. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. 
And so the challenge here is to remember, oh, to remember, to have the faith, the imagination, to remember that the great turning point in history was not, for instance, the fall of Rome or the Reformation or the scientific revolution or the Enlightenment or the founding of America or the invention of the Internet or the Apple phone. All of these turning points were small, so small, small fry next to the cross of Jesus. Then and there the world was judged and it was cursed and it was crucified. And there the Colin that lives in the world and in whom the world lives was crucified with Christ. And among what emerged from that wreck of judgment was a Colin who now lives by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so that's my permanent identity. That's my future. Or I say he is my future, Jesus Christ. Called by him, connected to him, abiding in in his word, communicating with him. That's reality. He is reality and I'm connected to him. And so technically, I no longer have a relationship with the world. And again, I'm not talking about the land or the globe, but I no longer have a relationship with the world, this system that isn't self-consciously under God. The world that resists God and his kingdom is passing away because it has been crucified, and yet it rages against its dying by deploying influence to exert control on you over people. It tries to squeeze you into its mold, be that, be that ways religious or political or cultural, even in a Christian mode. The world tries to squeeze you into the mold only for the sake of proving to itself its influence of putting on a show. And in several ways, brothers, it would be easier for all of us to allow ourselves to go along with the world, to be part of its show. And living against the grain of the world, not being conformed to to it, being transformed by the reality of this world being crucified, All of that ushers into your life stigmata. Stigmata from the right, stigmata from the left. So brothers and sisters, here's the challenge in a couple words. No matter how much pain it costs you, think and live as if the cross has happened. Think and live as if the world has been crucified to you and you have put on the Creator and the Savior of the depths of the seas and moon and fire and lightning. Think and live as if you are all sons of God through faith. As if a new creation has in fact dawned and now the the thing that counts is living by faith in the Son of God. 
brothers and sisters, you are, this is, this is, you are secure. You are stable. You are. You can walk into the room with the bounce in your step. Not because you're in the majority of anything. Or because you're rallying around trendy causes. Be they Christian or otherwise. Or because you're flying the flags that everybody else is flying. You're not unshakable because your kids are doing well. Or because your wallet is bulging. Or because you have a lot of friends. These are all shifting sands. You are stable because you are living into the one who made rocks. Who created the light of the sun. Who made the winds to be swift. Jesus Christ, the creator saved you. The creator, savior, loved you and he gave himself for you. And so here's the point. Christ, all who he is and all that he's passed through is yours. Yes, Christ, all who he is and all who he's, all what he's passed through is yours. And so with that in mind, I'd like to, for us to conclude this sermon by praying together out loud this old prayer from Patrick of Ireland. So this goes back to the three, 300s that emphasizes our life and our communion in Jesus Christ. Okay? Do we all have that sheet? Did Dylan do a good job? Oh, he doesn't have one. The, the, the cobbler. The cobbler. So, so some, you know, something about the cobbler. Okay. Um, you, I have instructions on there. It says all women, men, and then we're going to stand for that last bit. Let's all pray together in response to this great passage about the cross of Jesus Christ. Here, let, let's, let's all pray. We'll do it together. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through a belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. I arise today through the strength of Christ's birth with his baptism, through the strength of his crucifixion with his burial, through the strength of his resurrection with his ascension, through the strength of his descent for the judgment of doom. Women? I summon today all these powers between me and those evils against every cruel and merciless power that may oppose my body and soul, against incantations of false prophets, against black laws of pagandom, against false laws of heretics, against crafts of idolatry, against spells of witches and smiths and wizards, against every knowledge that corrupts man's body and soul. Christ, to shield me today against poison, against burning, against drowning, against wounding, so that there may come to me an abundance of reward. Let's all stand. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, 
Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. Amen.